Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Real spoilers powered by ReviewSTL.com. Warning, the following film discussion will ruin the ending of any movie you haven't seen. Example, Bruce Willis is dead at the end of The Sixth Sense. See how I ruined it for you? Just like that. Here are a few more. Silent Breed is people! Real spoilers. You've been warned. Broadcasting from the lush but not lavish studios located in the basement of the O'Keefe Institute for Advanced Film Snarkitude, this is Real Spoilers, episode 587. I think this might be the oldest film we've ever tackled, The Maltese Falcon. Wow, I kept trying to get it to come in in color. I couldn't. I adjusted every <laughs> setting I could find, and for some reason, just completely colorless. You need uh, Turner Vision think that'll fix it is that what it is that's what it is i mean <laughs> they make enough um jokes in the second one for enough color apparently yeah, yeah. oh yeah we'll save that one for we'll save that one for later but uh but yeah so but before we get uh too uh too far afield let's go around the virtual table and everyone can introduce themselves this is joe this is Kevin. And this is Tom. Uh, quick shameless plugs. Don't forget we're available on Apple Podcasts where you can go rate, review, subscribe. Uh, you can also uh, oh, be sure and subscribe while you're there so you never miss an episode. And check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash real spoilers, uh, where you can like the page, join the group. It's a great way to get involved in the conversation, and we love to have you. And, of course, our Patreon, patreon.com slash real spoilers, where for five bucks a month, you get all sorts of bonus content and the pride of having helped out. And there is a colorized version of this. Is there really? No. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Oh, I didn't realize that. I feel like that wouldn't look as good. I think, I mean, I'm pulling up on YouTube. I mean, it's bad. It's, it's, uh, one of those really crappy jobs. It's just like they probably just automated it and has like sepia tone looking color. It was, yeah. Where like everything was pastels. I will say, yeah. <laughs> I'm still not in favor of colorizing movies, just for the record. Nope. But I, I will say that, um, the process has gotten much, much better. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, have you seen that episode of I Love Lucy yeah. that looks like it was filmed in color? That's insane. Mm. I mean, it that was mind-blowing. It looks really good. Yeah, you can yeah. here's uh someone online selling the uh, uh, the full movie colorized. And I think it was like Ted Turner went on that tear in the uh in the mid-80s colorizing films and and he had oh. access to the Warner Brother library, so that's kind of yeah. what he what he picked apart so it was like that and i know he i think he had colorized it's a wonderful life it was 
That was man. That would look. That would look even worse. There's something about old black and white movies. I love the aesthetic. When you when you see the shots and the contrast, and they're just they're breathtaking. They're so beautiful. And when you watch movies in color, I don't know. I, there's a whole thing about classic movies. There is a feel of them. There is a like you said the contrast and like black and white. It's it's not just because they didn't have color like they they have to use lighting differently and they have to use but, all kinds of different the shadows and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, right, so when like you with, add with, color to it it just ruins the whole thing. They were using Definitely. the black and white it, it wasn't it, it was a feature, right? Like it was like they they turned it into a tool. It wasn't a hindrance. Right. They they were right. they, I don't know, they were the wet. range. You can yeah. you, you get so much more of a range and depth in a movie because when you film something in color and you have to adjust it for for all the proper you know all the camera stuff, the white balance and the ISO and and the frame shutter speed, all that stuff. You do all that and you lock it in and then you get it to the right color. And nowadays it's digital, so someone has to go in and they have to uh, choose the right color. So they have to correct it and do all this stuff. But when they do that, they don't. You can't get the same amount of contrast because if you did the colors wouldn't look right but right. with black and white you can get so many like i you know i don't i don't know if i should say different shades, shade, of gray, shades of gray right because that's the first thing you think of <laughs> but there's like there's that such a depth and and like if you were to go up a chart you would have so many subtle differences in gray all the way from black up to whatever up up to white and so that's why these movies when you watch them in 4k restorations and all that and you're watching on an hdr tv where you get that whole range it's amazing it was a shame when they went down that road people were apoplectic a film buffs were and rightly so i'm glad that they killed it and like i love lucy even though it looks good it's still weird you know like you're still sure you're still you're just used to seeing those characters live in a black and white world and it's just really weird to see them in color i remember when they did like a return to Mayberry, the made for TV reunion film. And that was shot in color. And, and that looked weird. And yeah. And, and then it was, it's also weird that it looked weird because like the last three seasons of the Andy Griffith show were in color. Like it well, wasn't, I love Lucy oh. was in color too, right? No, no, no. I love the Lu- end. Uh, Lucy show, the Lucy show. So she, so I love Lucy went off the air, but Lucy didn't. And so, Mm -hmm. I mean, she might take a year or two off, but she had the Lucy show and then she had here's Lucy. And, and those was the, what, what was the Superman episode? I think don't remember. Was that I love Lucy? I don't think so. I I feel like, I mean, yeah, there's an episode where, where George Reeves shows up as Superman uh, and like that's that's the line where he says to Ricky, he's like, "You're married to her," and he's like, "Yeah," and he's like, "And they call me Superman," and like that's the that's the joke. But I'm trying to think of I I thought that was well, when so he was I in see color. That. There's a clip from 1957 and it's black and white. Oh, and okay. There's a clip that says Superman restored in color or remastered, so oh. they, they colorized it. Interesting, because yeah. mm-hmm. that show showed up in color the last season, I think. The Avengers of Superman went to color and then the last season. Oh, did they really? Yeah. Yeah, so. there's some color episodes of that mm-hmm. show. Like that's a weird show. And just in terms I love of that its show. in terms of its production history and cuz yes. it wasn't a network show, it was syndicated. It was in first yep. run syndication, so it was it was uh it it was always and they would just ch- nobody cared about continuity back then, so they would just change whatever <laughs> they wanted. Nobody cared. Yeah. It's yeah. very odd. 
That's very, a, very such odd. a great show. But uh, but anyway, so yeah, it says uh, colorized version. Colorized version. It was colorized in 2015. Oh, wow. along with L.A. at Last, which guest starred William Holden. Hmm. But again, those uh, those I Love Lucy episodes, just seek them out just to watch how good the colorization is because they've done the stuff, like Tom said, for years, and It's a Wonderful Life. That's one they did many, many years ago, and, and the colors are so subtle, it doesn't really give it that full effect. But when you watch the I Love Lucy stuff, it's amazing how like the computer, I guess, can pick. We talked about the different range of gray, and the computers are so smart now, they can pick out each one and do the shuttle the subtle color shifts and so oh, right it almost looks filmed in color it's it's unbelievable but but again just just leave it be yeah <laughs> and then just just uh since we were talking about this so i love lucy ran from 51 to 57 and but their episode count is crazy because it was such a hit i think there were some seasons mm. where they were making uh, almost the equivalent of what we would consider two seasons of television and one Holy. season. Um, well, they had their own studio. Yeah, I mean, they invented that, you know. Crank and then yeah. the Lucille Ball Desi Arnaz show, uh, which was in reruns as the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour, ran from 57 to 60. And um, and th- a lot of times I think that gets lumped in now with I Love Lucy reruns because they're still together, at least on screen. Oh. And then they get divorced, and uh, I didn't like anything outside of I Love Lucy. I did not like it when Lucy was on her own. Yeah, but the thing I is, didn't, the thing is, she needed that. She needs that foil, the straight man. Well, she had Vivian Vance, I think, on all of these. But, um, but the thing is, is that even though those other shows have kind of they don't remain in the pop culture zeitgeist in the way I Love Lucy did. Look at this. Yeah. I Love Lucy, fifty-one to fifty-seven. Okay. Lucy Desi mm-hmm. Comedy Hour, 57 to 60. Then mm-hmm. we get the Lucy Show, 62 to 68. Man. So two-year break. She's back at it, 62 to 68. And then and then you get Here's Lucy, 68 to 74. Shows you how popular yeah, Lucy so, was, I mean, for sure. Even though we don't remember the... Wouldn't that start in the 50s? It started in 51. That's, that's three decades. Yeah, so with the exception of like two years... She was essentially had a hit sitcom for almost twenty five years. Man, but think like like you said, Tom. Though, name me the uh, memorable moments from anything other than I Love Lucy Co. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> and it, and it, you it's, could it's rattle all, off a whole list of Vegemite vitamin and. Uh, but I will like, also say, and you know, like it's hard to say because these shows didn't live on in syndication in in the same way that Isle of Lucy did but now you could also make the argument that that's because people didn't care but um yeah you could still I mean you could again like I've seen them they used to replay some of that stuff on Nick and, yeah. and all that and it's but they don't they don't enter the zeitgeist like you no. said They're, I mean and I'm not saying there was never anything entertaining it's just the, that show was an, a whole different level and it, 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 there's so many quotable moments and it was fun and in that dynamic of the Fred and Ethel with Lucy and Ricky and her up to her schemes and 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 uh, Ricky being the foil, like Joe said, it's it's great. I mean, but uh, Maltese Falcon, and Maltese Plus. Falcon. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I guess uh, let's dig into that. Joe, good luck. Did you do all your plugs, Tom. Yeah, we did. We did. did okay, cool. Yeah. Just want to make sure. Good luck. Good luck. Well, I mean, I could do this. I could do this one. <laughs> it's a pretty uh, intricate plot. It is. It's also. It's interesting. Uh, as I'm watching this, I had never seen this before. 
So you've as never I'm, seen the Maltese Falcon? Nope. Oh, just wow. one of those ones that yeah. uh, you know just slip through. Finally, it's interesting to see how close this is in, uh, like beats to something like Jack Reacher. Mm. So he's the he's the detective or the the private eye who you think who's always one step ahead. He's always one step ahead. You, even when you think, even when the, the the movie makes it play like he's not, we find out three, four scenes later that he actually was. Well, what's so, like back in the day with talk about black and white movies and old classic Hollywood and movie stars? There is just something about actors like Humphrey Bogart. They they have this this aura of cool. They they there's something that just there's just something so different. You know, we've talked before, I think, about, like, what's the modern-day equivalent? And maybe George Clooney. Like, I don't know. Movie stars then just seem different than movie stars today. Yeah, because Clooney um, is smooth, but he mm-hmm. doesn't... Like, Bogart is his own thing because mm-hmm. he's not good-looking, but right, nope. there, there's something about him that women are still drawn to him, even though he's not good-looking. He's got this, this rough-around-the-edges tough guy thing that that Clooney just doesn't have even when he's in Mm -hmm. an action movie playing a tough guy yeah and does he ever Clooney I don't think ever plays a tough guy Clooney has always had like the I'm smarter than you just like uh, just the uh, from dusk till dawn is the only thing I can think of what about out of sight dusk till dawn he is definitely the tough guy what about out of you think he's a tough guy and out of sight I feel like he's the same character in Ocean's Eleven yeah I guess (laughs) I mean I'm yeah what three kings same thing yeah like yeah he's got a gun and stuff but from dusk till dawn he's actually like a criminal but he's not a tough guy he's not though like he's just smart yeah and he can handle himself but there's like when i think of a tough guy i think of uh i wouldn't even the rock (laughs) but i mean like that's that's what i think of as like the or schwarzenegger or still like that those 80s action stars like those guys were tough guys jason statham <laughs> Jason Statham for sure, yes. But maybe it's because we talked about the difference between black and white film and classic movies and the way they were shot, and so these stars lived during that era and they spoke differently. And a lot of movies were more like plays as opposed to the films that we have today. And the, but there's something about the leading man and this era of these black and white films where they are just cool and mm-hmm. they they just seem on a different level, right? So. So when you watch a Humphrey Bogart movie and you just, yeah, he, that charisma he has and the confidence, it shines through and there's, there's an undeniable uh, magnetism to them. Yeah. And this is yeah. widely considered the, the first film noir film. So this is kind and it, of, and it hits all the tropes. Yeah. This is, I mean, it creates them. Doesn't hit. Well, them. Yeah. <laughs> they all hit the tropes that it created. Yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess that's true. They create the tropes. So, uh, yeah, so we're introduced to Sam Spade, who is obviously played by Humphrey Bogart. Oh, this is um, Sam Spade Sr. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> we need to yes, clarify. Yes, it is. Just noting that for future reference. Yeah. Uh, and he's a private detective, and, you know, back in the day. Oh, he's a dick. He is a dick. Yeah. And he is a dick. But it works. No, he is. We already said he is a dick. Yeah. We, we're aware. Private eye. Yeah. Private eye. Um, mm-hmm. And if you know anything about like noir detective stories. There's um, the Parker books and there's the quarry book. There's some great like little novellas out there that are totally worth your time. Anytime that the, the beautiful woman walks in the door, 
Yep. Uh, red flag. That's the that's <laughs> like the trope. That, chances are she's the bad guy <laughs> in some shape, form, or fashion. She's rewatching the bad guy. this movie again makes me realize how much Chinatown took from this movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah lots of it. Like uh, you know, in Chinatown, down to the hat and like the the gear. Yeah, I I mean I hate to reference uh, any skis ball directors or anything, but the movie we all know is a classic, and the tropes and with the woman and then the you know things aren't what they seem. This really is like when Chinatown was being made. You could be like, okay, here's the blueprints, and they're titled Maltese Falcon, and there's so many parts that apply. Yeah, and it's even even down to Jack Nicholson's like costume. Mm-hmm. Like he's very well, he looks very similar. To, it's to set Bogart. it's set in the same era, so. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So your, his costume would be the same. Yeah, I mean, it's said a little um, bit later because uh, I believe Chinatown is in post-war L.A. where this would have this comes out in '41, takes place in in the present in the then present day. So the war is going on or ramping up. So this came out in October of 1941. So okay. we haven't entered the war yet. Gotcha. Right? But wow. but it's this is pretty close to Casablanca, then, isn't it? Casablanca comes next because Casablanca revolves around World War II. Oh, so that was in '42. Something like that, because I know Ingrid Bergman uh, studied this film when she got cast in Casablanca to kind of get a okay. handle on Bogart's acting style. I know it was right around that era. So, OK, 1942. So, wow, this is right before Casablanca. It's I, what I, so that I was going to ask that, like, what is the obviously we know today movies, to, you know, you've got like maybe a year and a half, two years when something is announced to when it comes out. What was the turnaround on something like this? couple months well, they were whipping them out because I mean, it was the studio system yeah i mean the, i guess that's true the, yeah, yeah that's the, the studio system and also you got to figure that you didn't have television yet so people were going to the movies constantly so you, oh that's true you wouldn't let a movie come out and and run for you know for six or eight weeks like you, <laughs> trying to cross the billion dollar mark <laughs> yeah i mean you you know and that's part of why Adjusted for inflation, no one will ever match um, uh, Gone with the Wind is because there was no television. So on a Tuesday night, you'd be like, let's go to the movies because that was. And they had air conditioning. Yeah, and there was air conditioning. That was (laughs) one of the big selling points. But, like, uh, so to put it in perspective, Bogart made three movies in 41 High Sierra, Wagons Roll at Night, and Maltese Falcon. In 1940, he made four movies. In 39, he made one, two, three, four, five, six, seven movies in 39. Oh. Now, wow. he's um, he he's that's where he's kind of starting to become a star. So I think when you got better known, you were probably you you know you probably were making fewer movies because sure. one the production quality got better, so they slowed they had to slow him down a little bit. Um, and two, they didn't want to like oversaturate you, but on your way up, I mean, you know, 37, he made one, two, three, four, five, six, seven movies. Man, yeah. that's, that would never happen today. No, never. And yeah, oh my, I think the closest, the closest you get is rock making like three. Yeah. So b- b- before we go in b- back into the plot here, I just saw the budget on this movie was three hundred and seventy five thousand dollars, <laughs> and the box office was one point eight million. 
<laughs> just that's seems so minuscule. I mean, I know that that's not adjusted for inflation, but still, just to look yeah. at those numbers when people and how were, highly regarded this movie is, it's, what a different time they were paying a nickel to get in. I mean, also, <laughs> yeah. also think about that. Like they, you know, I'm and I'm not a hundred percent. It might have been ten or fifteen cents, but even then, you know, divide that by by twenty five cents and think about how many movie tickets you have to sell to make one point eight million dollars. It's oh, a yeah. lot. constantly. It's a lot. Absolutely. It's a lot. And also, lot. they didn't have the other revenue streams, right? They, there was no selling off TV rights or any, you know. Any, you, didn't, you didn't have the Maltese Falcon toys? No, no Maltese Falcon <laughs> no. toys. Although I do have a Maltese Falcon. Do you yeah, really? I do. I have it's on my, my mantle. Yeah. That's awesome. Is it crusted with, with jewels or no? Just the lead one? Yeah, it's it's one of those resin models. The right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, the, this woman walks in and uh, Ruth, I think was her name, and basically says that she is there looking for her sister um, who was kind of she thinks she was he she was he, her sister was tangled up with this guy named um, Thursby. Thurby. Thurby? Thursby. Thursby. Yeah. Thursby. Uh, and that, so Sam and his partner agree, you know, for when they start talking about money, it's like, I'll take five bucks or 20 bucks. And it's like, talk, wow, talk of, and we'll talk <laughs> about the writing in this movie where it's, it's just like, so I think he takes $200 from her because she puts out a hundred and then she gives right. him another hundred. And then when he talks to his partner, he says that, oh, and that he said, he looks at the, the hundred dollar bill and Sam says, oh, and he's got friends in there, meaning in her purse. And what, what a way to write and talk. You know, I just but that's how that people about... talked back then, right? No, that's so slick to be like, be like, yeah, and they had friends, right? Right. I right. mean, it, it's clever. It's it says what you're trying to infer, but in a comedic way, but without saying like she's loaded. I don't know. It. I just love watching old movies because of the way they speak. I mean, among many things, the the writing and the way they deliver these lines. It's it's great. The the line that Kevin and I went back and forth about is one of my favorite lines of the whole movie. Oh, there's so uh, many and in this one. We'll, and we'll get there. Uh, so, that yeah. So, um, Sam's Sam's partner. Archer. Sam, who, who's in charge of this whole uh, detective agency, kind of tells Archer to, like, you just go. Go follow her. Like, do your thing. And we'll, fi- you know, we'll follow her. Or does she say, does she, does she tell her, does she tell Sam where Thornsby is staying? Thursby is staying and that's where yeah she saw him earlier in the day and she describes it right right and, right. and archer right. is sweet on her and even though he's married uh he doesn't have a very good relationship with his wife we find out and so he's <laughs> trying to he's trying to put the moves on her and everything and so he takes the case uh and then once they leave from this scene you you cut to uh archer trying to follow this thursby guy and you don't ever see the from the perspective of uh, you see the perspective of the killer where you don't see their face, but that you see the gun and right. it shoots Archer. Which the, again, like uh, that, that's a trope we've seen a billion times. And that's the only scene in the entire movie that Bogart's not in. Oh, wow. Is that right? Yeah. he's The studio made him add it. <laughs> they were like, but yeah, that's the only <laughs> scene that he's not in. <laughs> that's true, yeah. That's funny. Man, could you imagine just like the, the amount of screen time they're like, no, I, I do you think that's him or that's them saying that's the studio saying, no, we have to keep him on screen. Did the studio made them add the scene that he wasn't in like that was at their at the studio's direction, man. Give him a little break. Uh, 
Yeah, she's like, I need to, I need, yeah, can I take a second? But it's in the first five minutes of the movie, and then then it's off to the races. So, so from this point on, it's a whodunit, and he's trying to figure out, well, who killed his partner? Why did they kill the partner? Uh, But you have, you, you have the police are after sam because of his affiliation and and then this woman has mysteriously disappeared that the dame that walked into his office has disappeared and so i love i love this aspect of of the noirs the mystery part of it and you get to kind of play along and figure it out and especially when you have someone like bogart who's charismatic and it's fun as he makes his revelations and you're following along. Yeah. And he's in, like you said, he, I mean, he's working the case like that's, he's doing his thing and, um, there, there don't really hide the fact that he's probably having an affair with, uh, Archer's wife. I don't think it's probably, <laughs> I mean, he's having an affair with Archer's wife. <laughs> he's up in her guts, man. <laughs> yeah. That's he, uh, almost immediate. Like that's why the cops are there. Like we, you know, it's, this is LA in the forties, which is one of my favorite settings for movies because it's just, it's awesome. Like, you know, you, you look at, uh, we LA confidential, unfortunately, but, um, the game LA noir, like all of this stuff is this cool time in LA. So all the, everybody knows what's going on with everybody else. So the cops are like, we know like you had a motive to kill him. And he was, you know, well, and I also think that they, they've, they're trying to piece it together. Like, uh, the partner is dead and they think Thursby killed the partner. And so they think Sam killed Thursby and you know, to get revenge or something like it's all the whole twist to get the, there, there was money involved. He calls him on it. Cause at some, at one point they believe both things. They believed he killed Archer and he killed Thursby. And he's like, well, I, I, I can't, can't have done both of those things they don't make the logic doesn't bear out you know it is interesting like so we we, we'll get into the um reason that the second movie will never make air ever again (laughs) but they're like they're making some jokes in here that i thought were really interesting like he kind of he when the two cops show up he's like what's wrong with your girlfriend and i was like that's boyfriend the boyfriend right and i was like oh interest like that's an interesting joke in 1941 i took note of that too I can't. I can't believe that he made the joke that early on that calling the other cop his boyfriend. I've never seen that in an old movie before. Yeah, I, I mean it's a joke now. He also refers to Wilmer as a gunsel, which uh, is kind of uh, slang at the time, implying that he's gay. And so, and oh, and they they also kind of intimate that that all three of them are gay. That that. Gutman, the two, and, oh, and uh, Peter Laurie's character, um, Cairo, Cairo, that they're all three gay, not necessarily in, like in a relationship with each other, but that they're all that they're all three possibly gay. In fact, for this movie, wouldn't air on television for like close to twenty years because people were there was like, oh, there's the, the there's gay stuff in it. We can't let that be on wow. the TV. When there's no gay stuff in it whatsoever, yeah, isn't that crazy? I will say how... that, that Gutman Gutman does kind of come off, uh, less. I don't, know, I don't want to say effeminate, but like when you're on screen with like Bogart and all those guys, like he does have a different feeling to him. Maybe posh. How about that? He's, yeah, he's he's, more... he's definitely he's got this air of sophistication about him. Yes. that that plays a little oddly in a good way but but plays oddly against the backdrop of this tough guy film noir film and that's uh 
that's his first movie. He was a Broadway actor, and he had oh. never made a film, and was scared to death. <laughs> so Casper oh, well. Gutman, played by Sidney Greenstreet, he goes by the nickname the Fat Man, and he is looking for the Maltese Falcon. How is this guy not the basis for the Kingpin? Well, maybe he was. <laughs> I mean, he looks just—he he yeah. looks exactly like what maybe the Kingpin would look like. Uh, yeah. So the next morning, so Sam gets woken up and finds out that that Archer is dead, and um, immediately the wife's like coming around, and he's like, "Dude, no, uh, you can't be here. Like, this is not this is not going to look good if you show up." Uh, well, like, even the wife, know. the wife thinks that he killed Archer so that they could be together. Like, yeah. Right. And he's she, like, are you insane? No except, way. She, except she thinks it's romantic. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> um, so the next day, uh, the client shows back up and he's already figured out that she's lying about the sister. And she gives her a, gives him a different name. Right. Like that's the and this is where it all starts unraveling. Uh, for Sam, because he is, again, people fall in love very quickly in 1941 movies. <laughs> uh, so there's already like an attraction. Yeah. So she, she she said her name was Ruth Wonderly. And then when she talks to him the second time after the murders, she says that, oh, her name's really Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Oh, OK. That's right. That's right. Uh, and this is where she she kind of divulges a little bit of her plan of the plot where the sister isn't real. Um, and she was partners with uh, Thursby, and that he's the one that probably killed Sam. Or not Sam, but... Uh, Archer. Archer. But they have no idea. But nobody has seen this guy. Like, he's just like this this phantom being. Uh, and, of course, Sam being the untrusting... I wouldn't say he's untrusting, but, like, the uh, detective that he is does not believe her at all. He's skeptical. <laughs> He's skeptical. Yeah, that's true. I like when he takes all of her money, but and she's she's like, "How how am I gonna be able to to eat or whatever?" And he's like, "You better better pawn your stuff." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good luck. He's like, "Get to Hawking." Right. So is this is this where he starts to see the guy? Well, so Joel Cairo shows up at his office, poking around, like all of a sudden, right? Asking about this the, this black bird. And this is the scene that I I loved where. Cairo is just like he's useless. Sure. Not as a character, but like as a, a human being <laughs> in this movie. Right? Like he's got this gun, so he's got a, he thinks he's tough, and then Bogart like slaps the gun out of his hand. But I don't know I don't know that you're supposed to think he's useless as much as that Bogart's a badass. Oh, maybe. That could be. I, I take it as like I mean, I know that he's kind of a meek guy. He's not a, an intimidating huge type of gangster, but I still feel like you're supposed to like this is to show you that Sam is awesome. Like everything he does, he's not scared of guns. He's just like, all right, okay, whatever you need. And then he's just, yeah, hit slapping people around. Yeah. It's, it's effortless for this guy. <laughs> yeah. He smacks him. He hits the gun out of his hand. And of course he, Cairo doesn't know what to do because now he's like, Oh, uh, well he knocks it. He knocks him out. He, he gets, he gets the with, gun from him and he punches him <laughs> with like a judo chop. Starts looking through his stuff, and I I took it like he takes his money out. I took it like Sam is always hard up for money. Like he'll do whatever he, he can to get money, and so I took it that he was just going to take his you know money and kind of pocket it. And that's doesn't he? Isn't that what he does? He puts it all on the table, I think. But I took it as that he was going to be keeping that money. 
Well, yes, you tried to shoot me. You pull like, your gun. Like, I'm taking your money. It's, it's that's fair. Yeah, it's fair game. You tried to kill me, so now you don't get your money. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> but Cairo wakes up and he explains to him the deal and what he's right. looking for. And then he hires Spade. Like this is he. Bogart is getting hired by everybody at right. this point. And I'm like, dude, you got to get that money up front. Like, I, you're. I, I hear. I see what you're trying to do, but you make sure you get that money up front because chances how funny- are. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Well, he got at least he got some money off Cairo yeah, either right, way. Right. But then and then Cairo's like, "Can I get my gun back?" <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, okay, sure." Okay, so so that's the that's the joke in Aladdin, right? Like when when the genie says, "I can't bring people back from the dead." They're, he's doing an impression of this actor. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure cuz yeah. isn't this the same guy that's like in the Looney Tunes cartoons? Yeah. He pops yeah, up at a lot of things. I mean, he's such a distinct looking guy and the, his voice and everything. Um, is he in Casablanca too? Yeah. 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 I was going to say he's in Casablanca, which makes sense now with the same studio and a year later. But uh, Peter Laurie has such a distinct look and sound to him. Uh, but you see his features exaggerated in that stuff like cartoons, especially the Looney Tunes. And Was, and, was he in an episode of the Twilight Zone? Is he in the episode with the, the cigarette lighter? Where the guy says, I can, this cigarette lighter can light, you know, 10 times in a row. And if it doesn't light on, at any point, you can cut a finger off. Oh, I don't remember. I don't. I think that he is. I think he's the guy who's like, okay, I'll take that bet. And they open, like, they find, like, he has, like, a box full of fingers or something. Ooh. <laughs> I don't a good think that, I don't think that's him. No? I don't think he was on a Twilight Zone. Okay. Uh, so, but you know, I, one thing I want to touch on in this movie, because a lot of people that listen to this one are going to inevitably lead into the second <laughs> film and they're not going to watch the second film. But when we talk about the shift in tone, this movie has funny moments, right? Right. So, sure. Like, yeah, like that, that scene where, you know, even Bogart's laughing as they cut to black, like he, uh, Laurie asked for the gun back or, you know, uh, he, he asked for the gun. He's like, oh yeah, sure. Because Sam figures, oh, he hired me. Like we're working together now and then immediately uh cairo the character joe cairo turns on sam and points the gun at him that he just gave back and does it yeah right right i'm gonna be searching your office and bogart's like okay okay okay." (laughs) and then it cuts to black so like there's funny moments and and uh you know the next the line that joe was alluding to earlier that we'll get into uh there's funny stuff but it's never played like yuck yuck it's never played up like a comedy like a straight comedy so there is humor in it but it's handled really well and it fits the tone of the film overall yeah it's played for natural humor it's like when you get funny moments in a good action movie like it's die hard has funny moments but it's it's not trying to be a wacky comedy yeah unlike part two right it's not a Schwarzenegger action movie, right? No, see that. No, see that's not fair though, because Schwarzenegger. Uh, I mean, he's the he was the king of the one-liners, right? But that's those jokes are not. That's what I'm saying though, is that those are so cheesy. Yeah, you might enjoy the, the those movies, but it also like it's kind of winking at you. In a yeah, way, yes, you yes. know, I never said they were bad. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That, I thought you were saying that like the Schwarzenegger ones were trying to be funny. No, no, no. Those were what they were the king of what they did. That's what I mean, though, is like, you know, Bogart wasn't saying, you know, the one liner and then winking at the camera as it goes out. He's just offhanded. Like you said, it's natural. It, it, the jokes feel organic. And also Sam is he's a 
you know, like we talked about in previous episodes, like lovable D bags. Like I'm not saying he's a total D bag, but he's he he's a smart ass, right? Like he's yes. he's cool and collected and he he says stuff that's cutting and he's he's just that type of cool character to where when he says something it's an offhand remark and you laugh because it's it's just that he's got that uh, air about it and uh and, and instead of winking at the camera that's all yeah no i agree there's a there's a, a you're right i'm just trying to think of like when we get to the second one like that's that entire movie is and don't get me wrong it's got some funny moments but it's all played for laughs where this one is not yeah, so um, we'll get into that, but I just wanted to touch that it's like there is comedy in this one. We're not saying it's it's humorless, but it's different. Right. Yeah, I think part of the reason the comedy plays so or the funny parts play so differently in this movie is that um the studio was worried because this movie was very talky. There's so much talking in the film. It's, a it's lot like of a play. Talking. Yeah, I mean yeah. It, I mean it's like I mean the last twenty minutes of the film take place in one room. You know, I was amazed. Yeah, I thought the exact same thing. They yeah. just go back and forth. It's like like a you know one and, chamber yeah. piece or something. And there's another section of the movie that's like a seven minute unedited take. You know what I mean? So it's like it, yeah, it's very stage like um, at times. But uh, so but the studio basically told them to talk faster, so they did because they didn't. <laughs> so I which ends up being kind of uh, a hallmark of film noir films, just that that rapid patter fire but i think that it helps those jokes like those jokes don't always hit you the first time like you you watch it a couple times and they they mm. pop out in a way that I, I i don't think they always did they always do on that first run through at least not not a lot of them and i think some of that is precisely because of how quickly they're speaking they they never really say anything like with a with a comedic beat to it and hold for it like they just right. it's, it's the opposite right. of a laugh track on a sitcom it's the exact opposite they're not telling you where to laugh which i hate i mean we don't need to get into that but i hate <laughs> most sitcoms the with really bad jokes that just like every line they say they hold and i'd much rather you be able to interpret it and with this movie it just moves and moves and moves and like tom said on the second watch on a third watch when you rewatch it and you already kind of know what's going on you can listen for those quick little jokes and, and cutting remarks that come and go so so frequently and it's especially unusual for a film of this age because typically if they thought they had a laugh line they would structure the scene in some capacity so there'd be a, a pause because they were anticipating a theater full of people laughing at a joke oh, and so sure. that's why some of those um older comedy you know like Abbott costello or a laurel and hardy movie sometimes the pacing feels weird feels weird is because they didn't envision them being watched on tv you know 75 years later in your home by yourself they thought sure. they'd be in a big theater full of people and so they were trying to leave space for laughter which is why the laugh track was even invented because they're right. like how will people know when to laugh like they're used to theater <laughs> oh i and... don't know maybe do something funny oh yeah but i mean right. it, but in fairness <laughs> like you got to look at the his the 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 history like when they were doing tv which was when they came up with the laugh track it was evolving out of radio and vaudeville which was done in front of live audiences and so those first t television shows were all done in front of live audiences and so you had the natural laughter of people but as they as they moved after i love lucy going coming full circle and they started taping them on instead of performing them in front of live audiences they they were like 
well, this is going to look like a play, but you're not going to ever get any response to those jokes. And is it going to feel like the joke is failing, especially like if you remove like you don't need a laugh, a laugh track for something like The Office or Modern Family, those single camera comedies. It's it's a but when your comedy is is more of a setup punch sort of a thing when it's like, sure, you know, and I'll tell you another thing. If there's not a laugh <laughs> after that, like you're just going to assume it's going to feel like a bad joke, whether do it's they a even bad do joke it anymore? Laughter. Oh, yeah. They, you, I but mean, not not often, though. Most of the modern comedy shows have gotten away from the laugh track. I don't. I mean, there's, but I mean, Big Bang Theory still all that CBS. That's because stuff. Big Bang Theory is terrible. Well, that's off the air. That was the last one. What about that but, stuff like Mom? Like that's got to sit. That's got to laugh. Uh, right? Big Big Bang Theory wasn't a laugh track though. Big Bang Theory was always filmed live. Oh, it was in front of the live studio audience. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they had to tell them when to laugh too because they were just as bad. Chuck Lorre. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they had applause signs, but Chuck Lorre did go on the record because I, you know, I wanted to make sure I get my facts straight when I'm bagging on laugh track shows. <laughs> and uh, I had looked it up. I mean, this was weeks ago when I was railing on laugh tracks. And uh, Chuck Lorre said uh, that he never, one of the things he was adamant about was never using canned laughter. So it was all taken from the live audience. Well, I mean, yeah. And a lot of those 70s shows would, they would, you know, as the show started, you would hear someone say, you know, all in the family is filmed in front of a live studio audience. Mm-hmm. And that was their oh, way yeah. of saying these laughs are real, you know, <laughs> but some shows that are classic shows from that era, like MASH, they couldn't you, you couldn't film that in front of a live studio audience. Right. I would want to see that filmed in front of a live studio audience. That would be yeah. awful. Like, how would, would how would you do that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Before we jump back to the movie, though, just real quick. I mean, some of my favorite sitcoms of all time. And, and I mean, I know there's a lot of classics. I still love I Love Lucy and Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie. Still love them. They're classics, no doubt. But the modern ones, Arrested Development, The Office, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Community, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Scrubs, Modern Family, Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, uh, New Girl. Those, none of those have laugh tracks. Silicon Valley. And they're great. And But I would argue that it's not the lack of a laugh track it's just a completely different style of comedy you know what i mean no right but but i that it it is because they don't it but that's the thing i don't i prefer not to watch a show where every line is set up yeah joke set up joke set up joke these shows are so smart and cleverly crafted that you laugh because of the writing is is so clever and and funny it it's just naturally funny it's just an evolution of comedy styles sure. you know what i mean that it's you yeah. know like you you couldn't have made a show like community or arrested development 30 years ago like there, sure. you know, there, it's the evolution, yeah, for sure. And and so again, I'm not trying to bag on classic stuff, but if I had my druthers, I would pick modern comedy to watch because I appreciate the way that it's crafted, with the respect of the old stuff that I grew up with, and I still love it for what it is. But I just think that there's something. I feel like it. It's harder to. It's harder to make you laugh with clever writing than it is to tell the audience that, oh, this is funny. You know, constant jokes being thrown at you. But it's just personal preference. Yeah. And most of those early sitcom writers were joke writers. You know, they started off as as literal joke writers. And that's why the sitcoms that have stood the test of time, they had great characters. And then they were putting jokes in their mouths where a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the sitcoms that, that you can't stand or that parody of what you think of is, is a substandard sitcom. It's, it's like they just wrote a bunch of jokes and tried to, like, hammer out some yeah. plot around it. Like, there's, it's, exactly. it, it just feels very 
inorganic. Right. And that was the problem. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, back to this one. Uh, do, they, is this, do they go to... Well, so... The, so, Sam and Bridget hook back up, but are they... Is this when they're at the... Are they at the club? And then they run into Cairo again? Uh, it's at the hotel, I think. Yeah, he goes to her hotel. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, no, he goes to Cairo's uh, hotel. He goes that's to Cairo's hotel Where first. he runs yeah. into Wilmer in the lobby. This is where we get introduced to Wilmer. Right. Who... And the, the line. And the best line. Really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he, it's funny because I don't think this is a thing anymore about... Um, Hotel detectives. Yeah, that's not a thing anymore. I don't think that, that's no. <laughs> that is no longer a thing. The the house uh, detective. <laughs> I think it was a thing back then. I know it's just so oh, funny oh. to think about. I mean, you know, oh, this is the in house detective. Yeah, the in house two will cover up all the bad stuff that happens in this hotel. Right, like okay, security guards. Yes, the maybe an officer, a police officer on duty. But when you think of like a, a in house detective, it just sounds so just so different. You know, right. Uh, so yeah, he meets he meets Will Wilmer Wilbur Wilmer Wilmer Wilmer, uh, and he kind of I guess he realizes that Wilmer is working for the fat man, and he kind of says, you know, take me to him basically, and like, well, let's let's square this away. So we're finally introduced to Gutman, who is we've been referring to as the fat man, and he gives them he gives uh Sam basically the lowdown on what this what this thing is in 1539 the knights templar of malta paid tribute to charles v of spain by sending him a golden falcon encrusted from beak to claw with the rarest jewels but pirates seize the galley carrying the priceless token and the fate of the maltese falcon remains a mystery to this day ta-da and in case you're curious that's all complete bunk like there's not one ounce that's even better i love they made it up just for this movie (laughs) there's not one ounce of truth to any of that (laughs) yeah Oh, I was just about to get my shovel and my flashlight and my, my passport renewed. Oh. They sit down and they have this discussion and uh, Gutman basically hires, doesn't basically, he hires Spade as well. So now he's working for Bridget, he's working for Cairo, and now he's working for Gutman. But Cairo, um, doesn't Cairo work for the fat man too? We don't know that first. Okay, but, gotcha. But like when we're first introduced to Cairo, he kind of says like, I'll pay you five grand. Yeah. To get this thing, and then we find out that because Cairo he knows that Gutman's probably going to give him twenty five grand, right? So he's like subcontracting right. Spade because exactly. if he gets it, he turns around and gives it to the fat man for more money. But going back to Spade, like he he he's all about. I mean, he's working, he's trying to get cases, he's trying to make money, and so he'll do anything. And it's great that he's like he's been hired by three people for the same job, and he's willing to take whoever's money will pay him. Doesn't care. Yeah, it's nineteen forty one, man. You got. And I I was trying to figure. I think uh, I looked it up while I was watching this. Twenty five grand in nineteen forty one is like eight hundred and thirty one thousand dollars. Oh, is it really twenty twenty something like that? Yeah, which I still feel like. Is very cheap what, for like what, for like the multi million dollar yeah right yeah yeah um so it, again in typical like again we talked that this movie kind of sets up all the tropes um, Gutman offers Sam a drink and surprisingly enough he takes it and it's it's uh, drugged and <laughs> Sam falls you know passes out. So here's the other thing I was thinking as I'm watching this. Until we find out, uh, like, the bad stuff that these Cairo and Gutman have done, he's not really a bad guy. He just, like, when he gives his explanation about why he wants the Falcon, 
He just wants it. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't like there's no there's no ulterior motive besides like I want that thing. I Up want you to this go give point, me that thing. I mean, right? other than drugging people and holding people at gunpoint and all that stuff. <laughs> uh... Yeah, it's nineteen forty one though. I feel like that's commonplace. No? It's normal. That yes. normal? Have it all the time. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> um so Bogart comes around and he's, you know, trying to figure out what the hell happened because his face is messed up and it, he's drugged. Uh, and I, does he find the newspaper? Yeah, because they've newspaper? got because the in the in the hotel room they've got they've been trying to track down the Falcon, obviously, and so they've got this uh, ship name circled, and so he goes to investigate it, only to find uh, the it's ship's on, on fire. fire. It <laughs> is it is bad news bears. So, and I do like where uh, he starts asking the copper. And he's just kind of, you know, I have a friend on there. Like, you know, he's like, don't worry. And I love that the cop is Irish. Of course. Like, with a with a thick Irish accent. I was like, that's cop- my favorite thing in this whole movie. I cops love it. Are, cops were always Irish back then. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Like, it's right? just one of those, it's one of those tropes. I was like, yep, make sure he has the thickest Irish accent possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, like, don't worry about it. Everybody got off board. You know, you're fine. So he assumes that uh, at this point, I bl- in my interpretation, he assumes that he's been played by Bridget. Uh, and of course that she's been in on this thing the whole time. Like it was all a setup. Uh, the three of them are working together basically. Well, which is what I mean, yeah, I, I, we'll find out later, but yeah, I mean, maybe he infers that, that uh, he could have been killed on the ship or something. I don't, you know, I don't know what he's exactly right. Uh, so he gets back to, so Sam gets back to his, uh, office and in stumble. Had we seen this guy before? No. So this is just another character He's just from the ship. Yeah. Okay. That. Okay. So the the ship's captain uh, stumbles in and he's got this giant package. And what's in the package? The Maltese in the Falcon. What's in the? Oh man. <laughs> Sam goes. What's in the box? <laughs> what's, what's in, in the, the box? box? <laughs> it's Bridget's head. That's what's in the box. <laughs> oh man. Could you imagine if this movie was recut in, in that? <laughs> <laughs> gonna, Fincher's going to remake it and it's going to be a real Falcon in the box <laughs> um, but you should mention that the the captain carrying the package once the package is moved from view right, oh, right, he's right. been shot several times <laughs> Correct. He's his ship is on fire him. he's been shot <laughs> He's had a, that, that poor captain's had a rough day that's poor, poor bud uh, so Bridget calls the office and then Sam gives her an address he hides the Falcon so that no one can get it. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he stashes it at the bus terminal and, and mails the key to City. <laughs> <laughs> did you it was see easier he, back then. Did you see how he addressed it? No, I, I didn't. I, I'm assuming that's how you address things back then. But he really? just wrote, like, City. Like, not the name <laughs> of the city. He just wrote City. Like, I guess if it's going to stay in the same town, you would just write City. And, there, you know, there are no zip codes yet. Those don't exist. Wow. And he also didn't put a stamp on it, but I think that one's just a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't like uh, Bogart just scribbling something you weren't supposed to see. You no, no, the no. They, character lit- they they get a close up on it. It's not like it was. Well, they were like- supposed to CGI it out later, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Seventy five years later, <laughs> they didn't have time. They didn't have time to to get it out. Um, yeah. So I'm I was wrong. So Bridget gives him this address. Mm-hmm. So he hops in this, I guess, his own personal taxi because it's the same taxi driver and he knows him by name. Everywhere he goes, he's got the same driver. Um, so he gets there and, of course, everything's empty. Like that's it, the address that Bridget gave him was just an empty lot uh, where 
so now Sam is like, man, f this noise. Like, yeah. I, I know what's going on. Well, they're like, they're trying to they're trying to play him to get him like to leave the the package in his office or right. something so they can sack it. Right, exactly. So he gets back to the office, and who? This is where Bridget shows there up. There she is, yeah, at the office. Uh, he goes inside, and who's all waiting for him in the office? The whole everybody crew. The, the fat whole man, match. Kyra, Wilmer. Wilmer. And is this where he hits Wilmer and, and does the best yes. line of the whole? Oh, yes. my God. I was cracking up. I had to message Joe when he did this. So he, Wilmer is like this punk like kid, you know, like he, he's even worse than Cairo. I feel like he's not intimidating at all. No, not at all. And, and so, uh, when he's got, I think he's got a gun drawn at him and he ends up he's hitting got two. him. Doesn't he have two? I, I, but he's so he's got uh, Sam at at gunpoint, and he and he hits Wilmer, and he says, "When you're slapped, you'll take it, and you'll like it." <laughs> <laughs> Such a great line. The way he delivers it, it's it's so like fast and furious, and and it's just so. Oh my gosh, I was cracking up. It was the funniest line in the movie. <laughs> it's interesting when you when you look at Humphrey Bogart's face because I feel like he's got massive teeth, kind of like Freddie Mercury, and that yeah that adds to like the way he talks and the way he, so he's just got this, he's got a a way he delivers lines. That's kind of, I feel like every major actor at this point in the forties and on the forties, so Cary Grant, um, Clark Gable, Humphrey Bogart, like all of those guys have a distinct way of talking Mm -hmm. that separates them from each other. Sure. You know, like you, when you, when you look at Clark Gable, you're like, you can hear his voice. Hmm. And same thing with the with the other two. So it's just funny to see uh, see that in action with Humphrey Bogart and the size of his chompers because they're always sticking past his lips. Like he's got massive teeth. He had a look. Um, so this is where Gutman's like, "You're just gonna give me." He's like, "I'll give you ten grand for the thing," uh, and he's like, "No, like that's this. Uh, you and I both know how much this is worth. Like I know that you can, uh, you know, give me more money." The problem we're going to have now is you've got a bunch of dead bodies and the cops are going to show up and you, we have got to figure this out. Like, I'll give you the Falcon. I don't give a crap about the Falcon. I just want to get paid. Doesn't he negotiate to him, though? He's like, well, you can take the 10 grand or once I sell it, you can get a percentage and net way more. Oh, maybe. I don't remember that part. That's possible. Yeah. I think yeah, he, he does work a deal for him. Right, Tom? Yeah, he does. But but yeah. then he's highly skeptical that he'll I mean, he get the money. Sure. How's he ever going to? He's right. got to take his word for the fact that he sold it for the. He's telling him the right amount if he even ever sees this dude again. You know, sure, exactly, exactly. Um, so Sam, being the uh, ever resourceful man that he is, starts like you know pointing people out. Where he's like, you can you can pin it on him, meaning Cairo, and he's like, not a problem. We'll take care of it. Or you can pin it on Wil- Wilmer. They try to yeah, they try to pin it all on Wilmer, but and they, they knock do him out. Yeah, sort they, of they, like knock, they, they knock him out, and then they keep talking, and then they look over, and the love, door's flung open, and he's gone. Right, and he's just like, oh, which I mean plays into part two. Yeah, but doesn't he say uh, he's like he's like uh, that's some great. I, what does he say when he runs away? Like, oh, you guys did a great job of holding a hostage or something like that. I don't know. It's another, you know, Bogart, smart Alec line. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so. So real quick with Wilmer, um, you know, we've seen him recently in a film. I, we've. What was it? He's the uh, the apartment manager mm-hmm. in Rosemary's Baby. Rose- yeah. Yeah. There we go. I knew I knew he had looked familiar. I just couldn't like he I feel like he's one of those actors that I 
remember being an old man. Yeah, I mean, he's I just been... couldn't figure out where I knew him from. He's been around forever. He worked for, I mean, 40 years. And he's also in another uh, very, very iconic film and probably its best remembered scene. But he was... Uh, have you ever seen Shane? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the scene where Jack Palance's character guns the the guy down in the street, where he's like, "Pick up the gun." Yeah. Where? Yeah. He's the he's guy. The guy in the street. He's the guy Palance shoots. He's the street. He plays the street. He plays the street. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's and then that movie that scene is is most people feel the reason Jack Palance got an Oscar for City Slickers. It was a make mm-hmm. good. Because oh sure he got sure. nominated for that and didn't win and people look back and they're just like yeah that was a mistake that he should have been he should have gotten the, the Oscar the Oscar for Batman <laughs> yeah it's not go crazy <laughs> you're my number one guy Jack you're my number one guy um, talk about a movie that, you know what's interesting real quick you mentioned it Tom so I have to go back into it real quick City Slickers is a movie that is jokes yeah like I went back and watched it recently oh yeah and I was sure. very surprised because most movies don't play out like setting up setting up punchlines it's a Billy but Crystal City movie Slickers, yeah Billy Crystal is setting up jokes the entire time like the movie plays like stand-up comedy right it's I mean really I interesting. I think when Harry Met Sally is very similar I mean it's it's got this romantic comedy you know casing but mm-hmm. it's still very much a Billy Crystal movie with Billy Crystal doing Billy Crystal stuff you know? I just don't remember, and I'm not. It's Man, been I guess a while I need to rewatch since I've, that. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it, so I'm not denying it or anything. I just when I watch City Slickers, it stuck out to me way more, like constant I, jokes that it was. Billy I definitely Crystal doing comedy. I definitely think it's more pronounced there because, um, I mean, he doesn't have the female lead, and it's not written by Nora Ephron. Yeah, but um, but it definitely, you know, I feel like it's it's got a lot of those moments where you know he's like, I, you know. Did I ever tell you my theory that hieroglyphics are actually an ancient comic strip called Sphinxy? I, you know, he does a lot of stuff like that. <laughs> sure. You know, man. And back then, with when Harry met Sally, like Billy Crystal is a good-looking dude. I guess. Is he? I don't know. But when you think when you think about Billy Crystal, you think of him as like he's the funny, funny little funny guy. But back then, it was like, wow, he was a he was still the funny little guy. <laughs> yeah, but he, no, he was a, he was actually a good-looking guy though back then when he was young. It's weird to see him like that. When I think of Billy Crystal, I that's the period I think of. I think of yeah. of when Harry Met Sally, City Slickers, mm-hmm. Soap, Running Scared, like that's oh, that's so, what pops in my head. Running Scared, Running Scared needs like I love that movie. That's a good movie. That's yeah. a great movie. Yeah, uh, Jimmy Smith's and Gregory Irons. Oh man, that's good stuff. Gregory um, Hines, Gregory Haynes, not Gregory Irons. Yes, Gregory Haynes. Heinz. Um, Heinz. <laughs> Not yeah. the ketchup. No. No. So Sam ends up calling the secretary. Secretary shows up with the... With the bird. The, the falcon. And, of you know, this is a great scene. This this is probably... Like, this is the best scene of the entire movie where Gutman starts to... You know, he sees it and he, he assumes that, like, it's coated in, uh, like, Enamel. lead or whatever because so that it could hide the jewels. So he takes, like, a pocket knife and he starts scratching away at it and quickly realizes it's useless. Like, it's a fake. It's been a, it's been a fake the entire time. 
And he's been searching for this thing for years. And so it, it is a great scene to see him play out uh, his excitement and then the dismay and, and the um, just how upset he gets when he starts scraping it because he starts off and then he goes a little harder and faster. And then it's like he's just furious at, at that this thing they've been hunting down and going through all this trouble is nothing. And yeah, right. it's excellent. And Cairo is livid because they've spent so much money and time looking for this thing. And they, I think they, they give a time frame as to like what, what the time frame was. And basically what, um, Gutman says is that like, we'll just go to Istanbul and we'll just add it. You know, like, it's taken us this long. We'll just, you know, we can, what's another year I think is kind of what he says. Like we can just keep going if we need to keep going. Um, and they leave. And of course, Sam being the, the guy who plays it straight, when sometimes you don't think he's playing it straight, but he's always doing the right thing, calls the cops, tells them where the they can pick up uh, Gutman and Cairo. And then he turns on Bridget and basically calls her out and says, I know, like, you need to tell me what happened. Like, the cops are on their way here and I need to make a decision as to what I'm going to do with you. And she said, you know, basically, she says that um, she... She killed Archer, right? She admits to killing Archer. Uh, And then, like, that, you know, that's despite what was going on with, uh, I think, did she kill Archer and Thursby? Because she didn't want the. She Right? She didn't want an accomplice. Did she kill Archer because she thought that then Sam would go after Thursby? Yeah. (laughs) I never. I I I don't know. I never understood that part. I thought, I mean, she says it was an accident killing Archer. But I never understood why. Either way, she confesses to both murders. I can't can't remember. You know, there's a moment. So the cops show up, and it's the two cops that we've seen the entire time. Uh, And there's a moment where you think Sam isn't going to turn her in, but he does. And, you know, this woman that he felt that he met over a week and completely fell in love with uh, is now being taken away by the police. Yeah. And again, and true bogey fashion she's like she's like but whatever she says i'm paraphrasing but she's like but i love you and he's like well it'll see, come come around back in 20 years and we'll see what happens <laughs> it's like it's such a great line like he's like yeah that's fine but you committed a crime so i'll look yeah we'll see in 20 jail. he's like i'll have a few rough nights but <laughs> yeah, right. and this is where you get the line the probably his second famous line i would think what's that the you know what's that he's like it's a thing that dreams are made out of or made of, and then that fades to black. I would think that's his second famous one, besides Casablanca. Well, I mean, Casablanca yeah. has like has like eight or nine all time. Well, I guess that's true because you know, he's. I guess you've fair. got you know you played it for her, you played it for her, play it for me, and you've right. got uh, we'll always have Paris. And here's looking at you. Here's, here's looking, looking at you. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean that. Play it, Sam. Yeah, I mean that movie's an embarrassment of riches when it comes to quotable <laughs> yeah. lines. So this, so maybe this is tenth place, but nine of them were in Casablanca, <laughs> right? right. <That's> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's another Mandela effect, though. People think it's play it again, Sam, but it's yeah. play it, Sam. Well, and there's also a movie called Play It Again, the movie Sam. Called play It Again, Sam. So, but so uh, even they got the Mandela effect. I think they, <laughs> they, he did that purposely. There's no way Woody Allen didn't know that. But uh, I mean, he's just too much of a film buff, so. But uh, sure. you know that uh, you can see one of the original Falcon props in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. No kidding. Yeah, it's you know DiCaprio owns it. I think he paid like almost four million dollars <laughs> for it, and it's sitting it's on the real like one? it's 
it well so the real one uh we're in a bit of a gray area there as to okay <laughs> so though if you like there's an article in vanity fair i think about mm-hmm. the about the quote-unquote real maltese falcon and mm-hmm. it could be a, a a movie all to itself like it's so convoluted as to what is and isn't a real falcon who owns it who doesn't um it's very convoluted because they they made uh, I guess they had like several different like um, versions of it for the film. Two of them were lead, um, but mm. there were other ones that were that were lighter that were made out of probably not plastic because that didn't exist yet. Resin, I guess, and uh, mm. um, and so it, it gets very confusing as to what isn't. It, isn't a real Maltese Falcon. There's there's okay. some debate on if even I think the one DiCaprio owns that he paid millions of dollars for. That, I'll say, man, it better be real. That that might not even be real. And so, um, so it's like the real Maltese Falcon story. I mean, it really <laughs> kind of is. It's but uh, but if you look it up, uh, it's it's a Vanity Fair article, and I mean, it's long. It's like eight or nine thousand words. I mean, it goes on Woo! for a long time. And uh, but it's a very exhaustive kind of uh, examination of like trying to follow the chain of custody on on the Maltese Falcons that are out there. That's interesting. That's that's a a, I mean, if I paid it's almost like when Todd McFarlane played all those money, all that money for the home run balls that Sosa and McGuire were hitting. Like he spent ridiculous amounts of money on and then two or three years later uh bonds came through and broke the record yeah so those balls were completely worthless yeah <laughs> wow. i will also point out that when people complain about remakes and how you shouldn't touch movies and blah 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 come up with new things this was uh the third time that the maltese falcon had been turned into a movie so this ver- no this way. version yeah really? this is the third there was uh there's a movie called the maltese falcon that came out in 31 and then in 36 they made another one but it was called satan metal lady uh, and i okay. think it, and i and dashiell hammett hated them because i guess they kind of grafted on happy endings and i think satan metal lady was actually more of a comedy they actually kind of made it oh tried to make it funny well, you ain't seen comedy yet, buddy. Oh, we yeah, still have it. Yeah, it's coming, my friend. So, Don't uh, worry. So on the next one, we're going to tackle the sequel to The Maltese Falcon, and uh, it and it has connective tissue. Two of the actors from this pop up playing the same roles. Uh, um, but if you want uh, what could have been the sequel to The Maltese Falcon, there is one that exists. Uh, it's not officially a sequel, but it's called The Three Strangers, and uh, John Houston had written a, squ- a script for a sequel to the Maltese Falcon because this was a huge hit and they wanted to make another one. Um, and it was supposed to contain a lot of the same characters from this movie, uh, especially, you know, Sam Spade, of course. And uh, Dashiell Hammett shut it down because Warner Brothers owned the rights to the story, but Dashiell Hammett owned the rights to the characters. Mm. So ah, yeah, one of those. So they had bu- so they bought the rights to the novel, but not to the characters. And so he wanted like eighty thousand dollars to to make the movie, and they w- and that's a lot of money considering that they made this movie for for three hundred thousand dollars, yeah, right, right. <laughs> and so uh, they didn't do it, and they eventually filmed it as the Three Strangers. And actually, Peter Laurie and Sidney Greenstreet are in that movie as well. 
hmm. as as those well obviously not as those characters but I've never seen the film so I don't know if they're supposed to be playing you know thinly veiled versions of those characters I they're, hon- the, they're the they're the chubby guy right yeah like I I so honestly Batman, have no yeah. idea I've never seen it but um but. My guess is if they cast both of those guys, that's probably what they were going for. So if you want to see what was supposed to be a sequel to The Maltese Falcon, check out The Three Strangers from 1946. Are there Sam Spade novels? I believe there's... Is he, that's what these are based on. I believe okay. there, there is only one Sam Spade novel. Um, oh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, and, so it was just The Maltese Falcon? Yeah. Like he might have popped up in a short story. Um, mm. but, uh, yeah, I don't, it, it, there's not a lot of, uh, like a huge series, right? There's not a big, yeah, I probably series. have yeah. movies if there was. Yeah. That's I'll, what I'm thinking. Like I, yeah. I have a bunch of the, the Parker novels that's basically, that's based on the, uh, like pay payback with Mel Gibson and point blank with Lee Marvin. Like that's all the same character. Mm. So I was wondering if they, I, I love those little noir detective novels. So I'm trying to, maybe I'll read it. Well, this movie's fantastic. I mean, it really is such a classic and one of the archetypes, like we mentioned, for the film noir genre. It's amazing. And I was really impressed to see this was director John Huston's first movie. It just seems crazy. It's such a classic and it's so great. Uh, and of course, he has quite the resume um, under his name. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that's pretty amazing that this, you know, we talk about first time outings like Quentin Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs and john krasinski and you know there's some people that just blow you away on their first time and some people um, just have it right and um and he is the father of angelica houston and danny houston if that name sounds familiar yeah well and he pops up in chinatown right like he's the patriarch of that family well it makes sense i think that's why that connection there it's there's no doubt yeah yeah i this was this was fantastic i'm glad i Finally buckled down and see. I have seen this. On the downside, you had to see the next movie, which is 1975's The Black Bird. So, yeah, it uh, took me a few sittings. Yeah, so uh, let's uh, let's go around the table and everyone can say where to find them. This is Joe. You can follow me on the Twitter at Joey Butts, B-U-T-T-S 21. This is Kevin. Follow me on Twitter at Kevin R. Brackett. And this is Tom. You can follow me on Twitter at Roger Kubert or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Tom O'Keefe. You can find the show online, Facebook.com slash Real Spoilers. While you're there, like the page, join the group. And of course, check out our Patreon, Patreon.com slash Real Spoilers. Five bucks a month. You get all sorts of bonus content and you help out and we appreciate it. So anyway, that's it for this one. Coming up on the next one, we will tackle a movie you didn't know existed, which is a sequel to the Maltese Falcon called The Black Bird. So until next time, Mars has been blackmailing Vivian. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.